welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I talk with Martin Kuppelmann, CEO of Gnosis. We start off talking about prediction markets, where the project actually started from, and how as a project they've moved away from that. We then cover the new CowSwap decks, the success of the Gnosis Safe, its use as the foundation of a new generation of DAOs, and Safe Snap, a way to automatically execute governance proposals on Snapshot in DeFi governance. Now, before we start in, I just want to share a message to all the folks listening who might be thinking of jumping into the space. If you're looking for new opportunities to work at top ZK-focused companies, we have now a jobs board on the website. I'm adding a link to this in the show notes. It's a simple list of current open positions at some of the best companies in the space. And if you do apply, please mention that you found out about it through us. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority, a leader in the security of distributed systems, has created Private Storage, which is a private, secure, and end-to-end encrypted storage solution. Privacy is at the core of Least Authority's work, and Private Storage was created using privacy and security by design principles, and includes features like end-to-end encryption, zero-knowledge access passes, and accountless authorization. This ensures users have greater autonomy and assurance that their data is protected. Private storage cannot see user data when it's being stored on their grid. It's built on a commitment to transparency and open source technology by the least authority team. By using technology that is publicly reviewable, they allow the users to know exactly what happens to their data. Visit private.storage and register to be notified once the service has launched. This is a one-time notification email and not a mailing list, so the addresses will be deleted after the notification email is distributed. So thank you once again, Least Authority, for supporting the show. Now here is our interview with Martin. So today, Tarun and I are talking with Martin Kuppelmann, the CEO of Gnosis. Welcome to the show, Martin. Yeah, thanks, Sue. Thank you for having me. Now, we have already had Frederica, your business partner and partner, on the show in the past, and she gave a rundown of like the origin story of Gnosis, how you guys got started, and what had happened up to that point. But that episode was like two years ago. So I'm very curious to hear, like, what's new with Gnosis? What have you been up to since then? Yeah, a bunch of things. So yeah, I think we really morphed into this broader Ethereum uh, infrastructure company. So we started uh, focusing on prediction market, but started just so early in with within Ethereum that a lot of pieces that were required uh, to, to build things were missing. Uh, and that's why we essentially moved one layer down the stack uh, and built in- infrastructure like wallet, like Zenosa Safe, uh, like uh, yeah, exchanges, modules for DAOs and various elements. I think I actually spoke with Frederica about this idea of like Gnosis having so many very like some very, very used projects some very, very cutting edge ideas and and sort of like pieces of code or like products basically released into the wild. And I had asked her, like, is it a dev shop? Are you like doing lots of things? And at the time, she she actually said something along the lines of like our current focus is on focus. And I think it was that idea of like 
you expand out with ideas and then you have to like narrow down into like very specific ideas. Would you say right now, are you at a phase where you are like more outward, like trying to experiment a lot or are you actually focusing in on like a few specific projects? No, we are finally definitely focusing on the things that turned out to work uh, and that are mainly the wallet, uh, the Gnosis safe and uh, exchanges or what we call Gnosis protocol. And yeah, surprisingly, uh, other things that, well, we initially put a lot of focus on, on, uh, for example, prediction markets, we to some extent have uh, put to the side currently because we really focus on the things that are simply working. So what has changed for you on the prediction market front? Yeah, a handful of things. So, I mean, first of all, to build prediction markets, it was always necessary to have, um, well, some underlying mechanism. So obviously to have a prediction market, you have to have a market. So, so a DEX was always required. Of course, other projects are and have been building DEXs or actually the DEX uh, space is in, insanely competitive. But still, when we started there, there was no DEX, so we naturally needed to build DEXs. But that being said, we still feel building a prediction market as an application on Ethereum right now uh, is probably not a good idea because, well, transaction fees are one aspect. Currently, a simple trade uh, can cost $100 yeah, on mainnet, and that already kills a lot of a lot of use cases. Yeah, especially when it's prediction market. It's not even like a, a trade necessarily. It's a bet. Yeah, so it's it's very clear that the size of the bet would need to be, well, quite large to justify a $100 uh, transaction fee. And and again, kind of that, that already kills a lot of uh, use cases. So of course you could move to layer two, but we have, well, we decided for now to, to do more foundational stuff like, again, the no safe or uh, our work uh, on DEXs on, on L1. Hmm. Tarun, this is a question I'm going to throw to you. What's your, what are your thoughts on prediction markets? Have you, did you follow that space? Yeah, I mean, I think probably in a similar vein. I, I, I really thought they would be the killer application a long time ago. But I think over time, it's just proven that they need much more care and love than a lot of other applications. And I think we're just not at the point where that'll happen. But, you know, does this feel like you know, web van in 1999, like that later became, you know, like someone else 20 years later figured out how to do it for sure. What is web van? Sorry. So web van is like DoorDash or oh. Uber Eats or no whatever, way. but this was like pre in the first dot-com bubble and oh, it shit. didn't work. Okay. They're literally were the same thing, but they needed the mobile web and inter cell phones yeah. to make it work. Makes sense. Uh, and so I, I kind of feel like, you know, to Martin's point, the infrastructure is still just not at the level. And we don't know what the cell phone is for prediction markets, but it's, it's clear there's something <laughs> that's like that. I, I don't think anyone can tell you exactly what the thing that's missing is because there's just so many things you know that need to get built. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I kind of feel similarly. Although I, I think these like semi-centralized alternatives, which might have legal issues over time, will be a crutch until we build in good enough infrastructure. Is that the general feeling in that kind of part of the ecosystem? Like, cause there was other prediction market projects out there. Have they like, have a lot of them moved away from those original models? Yeah, I would say they are still kind of, well, always new players coming and, and trying and well, that's obviously a good thing, <laughs> but I, I have also become more, more skeptical about other aspects. Yeah. Prediction markets are, one one big problem 
or challenge at least is is the zero sum nature with the token system uh, kind of you have this well non zero sum uh, games where everyone goes into a token everyone gets rich uh, kind of or well ideally value is created and 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 so on with prediction markets fundamentally you have markets that are uh, zero sum markets where someone needs to lose and the question is who is losing yeah. uh, and and well the promise was always well you have information and you kind of use this information and you make money but you can only make money as if someone else is losing and there are some answers to that and kind of well you have uh, political betting where it's quite clear uh, and we saw in the last election that there was probably a decent amount of irrationality involved, which is in a way good for prediction markets because it answers the question who's losing. Uh, it gives in a way, um, mm. it, it funds those who, well, potentially provides valuable information. But in other markets, uh, when you ask when will East 2 launch, then the question is who is uh, who, who, who will be losing, who's, who's the fish uh, to finance the kind of um, revealing this useful information and then some answers might be or like what people tried is someone is, is willing to pay for this information but that's not easy <laughs> so i mean who's who's paying a hundred thousand dollars to kind of to get this information when and when then it's public so yeah no, those are just a few thoughts <laughs> that's interesting Did you feel like in that election example, I felt like that was one of the times where I saw the topic come up again in a big way. You know, I think people tweeting like, look, look, they're predicting it correct while the results were still being counted, even though, you know, kind of predicted in a wonky way at the time. It was also swinging wildly back and forth, depending on like what a newscast had said. But yeah, what did you make of that experience, like watching that in action? Was it was it sort of promising for the concept in the future? Like maybe once the tooling is there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say it definitely was a moment where where actually some market activity happened. Well, and, and, and definitely the, the surprising thing was how long after even the election happened, well, the odds for kind of Trump uh, still being elected or, or still w w whatever winning uh, were at the surprising 10, 15 sometimes even up to 20%. And I think to some extent that can be explained by inefficiencies uh, of, of, of the market setup. So you would need to lock your capital, uh, specifically if a market is denominated in, in stablecoin, then you might get, best case, you might get a payout of, of 20% in a time frame of a few months, when at the same time DeFi craziness is happening and, and you can kind of get a uh, 50% yield without any risk, uh, why would you take the 20% uh, with risk? Yeah. Hmm. The an interesting fact that at least just, and this is purely anecdotally, is that people I know who were professional sort of like sports gamblers who are, you know, in some ways, the ideal customer for a prediction market, most of them just trade crypto now instead of sports betting. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like when the market dies, when the bull market dies and we go back to a bear market, I'm sure they'll go back to sports betting. But a lot of sports bettors, especially in the pandemic, just kind of were like, well, I need to find a new thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think that prediction markets, unfortunately, have sort of the return structure of sports betting and less of the return structure of like these bull and bear cycles in crypto. So. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would also, yeah, yeah. I mean, say, same thing. So, in a, in a specifically in a bull market, when well, opportunity is so large everywhere else, then yeah, sports betting or, or prediction markets are actually quite a 
tight business and you might extract a few percent on on, on something uh, if you do it well but with a lot of work yeah exactly it's a lot of work and it's not that appealing if if uh, there are other opportunities uh, better opportunities so i want to i think most of this interview we're actually going to be talking about some kind of newer ideas that have come out of the Gnosis team, CowSwap, SafeSnap. Um, but before we do that, I actually wanted to throw back to an episode we did pretty recently where Tarun had mentioned that you potentially were at least part of the group that came up with the initial AMM model. And I, since we have you on the show, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about like, what was that? Like, what, what time frame are we talking? And how were these, how were these ideas first developing? Yeah, I mean, as, as I said earlier, uh, for prediction markets to work, you need to have markets. So we actually started to work uh, on prediction markets and therefore for markets even before Ethereum launched. And we wanted to be ready at launch. And actually, wow. uh, two weeks after Ethereum launch, we had uh, first market uh, running with back then, well, 1,000 Ethereum funding. That wasn't a lot of money back then. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyhow, and, and from very early on, we used uh, in the prediction market world uh, automated market maker, uh, and in the in the prediction market world, the market maker that's quite famous is this LMSR market maker invented by Robin Hansen. So we 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 were coming from from that world, or we well that was kind of the standard for prediction markets back then. Uh, and then there was this, this movement, and we're talking about yeah 2015, 2016, uh, to say okay, well we might use automated market makers also outside of prediction markets. And I think, yeah, there are many, many people involved in kind of very open exchange of ideas. I mean, I think that's really one of the core things that makes Ethereum uh, so great, in my view, this, this open marketplace of ideas, sharing ideas all over the place. So yeah, discussion happened on, on Reddit on, and on, on forums and really different people were involved. But yeah, at some point, well, we wrote a blog post describing how to build a DEX uh, on Ethereum that was early 2017. And there we concretely proposed this, uh, this, this formula, this simple uh, XY equals K formula, um, well, that then became very famous through, uh, through Uniswap. But at that time, like it, did you realize kind of what this was? Or was it just yeah, like, sure. and was it, was it fully developed? Or like, what had to happen since then? Well, I mean, we had, we had code for this. So we had a, well, we had, we implemented it actually. But yeah, I think it was probably too early. <laughs> uh, at, at, at those days, there were more, more urging problems to be solved. Um, and yeah, I think in, in, in the end, Uniswap definitely did, well, super nice and super clean uh, implementation of that. Definitely also, a cleaner and, and, and better execution of it, and then uh, rightfully uh, became this famous uh, exchange uh, for this. Yeah, I, I have to say, you know, like it's more amazing to me that kind of these discussions on Reddit posts in 2015, like even before, kind of, like around the "Can you stop trading?" incident, I remember there were a lot of Reddit posts between you and Vitalik and a few other people that were really kind of more or less pantomiming like hey like is there some invariant formulation we don't need this we don't need all the properties of an lmsr it's overkill and i think it's just kind of interesting how the set of reddit posts is kind of more powerful than like 20 years of academic research and this stuff because most people in academia were focused on this concept of high dimensional markets because it's kind of sexier but in reality how many people are really trading thousand asset portfolios for another thousand <laughs> right. asset portfolio? 
very few, right? And and I think like that was kind of the academics definitely lost. They they got caught in kind of like the thing that sounded sexy versus the thing that would be useful. And I, I thought that this this scenario is one of the more interesting stories that I hope society at large one day kind of appreciates but obviously i think maybe it might be our little world <laughs> but I, I think it's a very it's a very cool instance of like everyone kind of like believing the academics version of the world is just like prima facie true or something and somehow like no it just turned out that like you know market forces created something a little bit better which is cool. I, I don't know. To me, that 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 yeah. that that somehow the the narrative of this is, is is very you know unique in that way. Yeah. Although one reason we actually um, kind of dropped this effort was our probably back at the time uh, overestimation of the problem of MEV, so of of yeah minor extractable value. Well, obviously for the last two or three years that hasn't been. Uh, a big topic, but now, well, it finally hit reality. And so, yeah, I, I would say we spent the time, well, already in ante anticipation of this problem and hopefully uh, have now solutions that, that contribute to this problem. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of dive into how Gnosis is thinking about MEV, both from the stance of an exchange, but also from the stance of things like Flashbots, Maybe we can start with the etymology of CowSwap, because I think, um, you know, starting with the, the name might get us into <laughs> how that's related to MEV. Right, right, exactly. So coming from what we see right now is that if you place uh, your order against a market maker, or basically you're sending your order, your transaction um, to a miner, miners will extract value from you. So basically you are handing them over a transaction and they will use that against you. And they very explicitly do that. They well are very public about it, that they will, for example, sandwich your transaction. So you send your transaction trying to buy a token. They will write before this transaction gets into the block, uh, buy the token just before you, move the price up, then let you buy at a higher price. And immediately after your transaction was mined, well, they, they they will sell it, uh, the token again, uh, and and really just extract this profit, and and that is, yeah, that that's a problem. I would say in in multiple uh, dimensions. So of course, first of all, it's not great for the trader, but it is actually, in my view, a deeper problem. It even uh, challenges the concept of um, decentralization, because what we are seeing now is kind of the next step that to some extent users are starting or some protocols are starting uh, to defend by, for example, not sending their transactions at all to the public mempool, but instead uh, just just doing it privately and kind of having private arrangement uh, with miners, which kind of threatens the concept of yeah, censorship resistance and, and, and permissionless blockchain. But maybe one step back, uh, what, what kind of our uh, high level, our attempt or approach is, to say, well, instead of uh, sending your transaction to the miner and who already signaled that they will not treat it uh, well for you as a user, we basically ask users in, in, in CowSwap or in Gnosis Protocol, that's the underlying protocol, CowSwap is the product uh, on top of it, to send their transactions as yeah, so-called meta transactions or yeah, specific order format. And that cannot directly be uh, used by the miner. So the miner cannot 
just takes this transaction and, and try to extract value from it. But instead, we have this layer in between, which we call um, the solvers. And the solvers, they try to uh, execute the transactions or the, the orders on behalf of the user. But the big difference is that they are uh, bonded and they are governed. So the idea is if they they need to kind of give, give this promise that they will yeah execute the orders in some sense of fairness uh, for the user or in, in some form of favoring the user's interest. And if they don't do that, uh, they get slashed or, or simply the users would stop sending the transactions uh, to them. But high level, the, the, the ideas don't, Put, give the transaction to the miner, uh, give it to someone who cares about your interest. But what does that intermediate agent look like? You sort of said it's built on the Gnosis protocol. So is it the Gnosis protocol that's doing that somehow? Yeah. So, I mean, high level, it's you can say as you would broadcast your uh, Ethereum transaction to a network, you can instead broadcast your order to this solver network. And the solvers, they can like... Uh, like miners pick up those transactions and try to include them, but they are restricted in some forms. So they, they cannot do arbitrary stuff. They, for example, there are some basic uh, guarantees of fairness that we can guarantee through um, the contract. So for example, if there are two trades uh, on the same token in the same block uh, on Ethereum today, very likely the, um, those two traders would get a different price. In the Gnosis protocol, it's guaranteed by the contract that two trades with trading on the same token in the same block needs to get the same price. So there are some levels, some uh, requirements guaranteed, and then there are additional requirements that are just uh, softly guaranteed. So the idea is, well, let's say there's Uniswap and there's Balancer and there, there are different places of, of liquidity, SushiSwap, then the soft promise is you should execute it wherever the trader gets the best price. And that is something we cannot fully enforce by the protocol because that would increase gas costs uh, enormously. Uh, but that is something we can enforce on the governance layer. So if a solver consistently doesn't act in the best interest of the user, they can get slashed. And that then would be done by a governance layer. In this model, is there an AMM? Kind of going back to that topic or is like i'm trying to i'm trying to map what you're saying and then also bring it back to that so there is the whole uh, current ethereum dex spaces space with with uniswap with balancer with with sushi swap and kind of all, all those uh, amms currently well ethereum trading is dominated by amms but the solver is kind of the solver layer is in between the amm ah. uh, and and the mining pools so yeah, the solvers kind of decide how to ideally execute a bunch of transactions against AMMs. And there is also this uh, where, where cow swap comes from. And the idea of cows, uh, coincidence of ones. Okay. So let's say you have two traders, one selling token A and the other buying token A. Then if they would execute today their transactions directly on Ethereum, kind of the first transaction would hit the automated market maker, would get a specific price, then probably some sandwiching would happen, but well, let's put that aside. But then the second transaction would hit uh, the automated market maker and, and get a, yeah, again, a different price and then they would both uh, pay fees. In our model, they are kind of executed in a batch uh, or basically each, each block is, is one batch and we try to execute all trades happening in one block or in one batch, yeah, at the same time. So those two trades can already be matched against each other, and only and they will will probably not be 
exactly matchable, so they will probably not exactly have the same size, but so only the remaining part then needs to be traded against uh, the automated market maker. So, well, we save the user already fees from the automated market maker, and we give those those fairness guarantees that they, they get the same price. Can you say the acronym again for COW? It was... Yeah, coincidence co- of wants. Coincidence of wants. Okay. Yeah, so two people kind of, by coincidence, <laughs> someone wants want. to trade in... Okay trade in that direction and someone okay. wants to trade in that direction. Question about the naming. Did it have anything to do with there being a cow emoji as an avail? <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, we, we in, 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 the, uh, in the design, or obviously we play with this cow meme and um, yeah, people seem to like that. I think uh, one thing that's, that's important to remember is there has been no decentralized exchange that has been successful without actually being an emoji already. <laughs> My, I, I guess other than balancer, I don't really know what the emoji is for balancer. Well, they could have the balance. Isn't there a balance? Yeah, I symbol? think you're right. There is. I feel like but, there is. But like, like if you think about Uniswap and SushiSwap, like the single emoji right. meme was like one of the driving characteristics of both of those launches. <laughs> so in this case, though, CowSwap, it's you just described it. It sits between the user and the AMM. Is it taking a fee of its own? Yeah. So. It is, and one part is is extremely natural because on on CowSwap as a user you don't pay uh, the Ethereum gas fee. Well, usually if you trade on other market makers, you pay the simple transaction fee, and here you just sign this order that basically gives the solvers the allowance to take your tokens and give you other tokens. But eventually the uh, the solver uh, will need to execute the transaction and therefore pay the uh, pay the gas fee. So how we do that is that part of the order is a fee that you then can already pay with the token. Well, either you're 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 selling or you 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 want to buy, uh, and that would go to the protocol. What would you call this? Is this a DAP that lives on top of other DAPs? So we 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 see it to some extent as a as a metadex. Yeah, probably a probably middleware. Um, CowSwap CowSwap itself, of course, is a product. Um, but uh, ideally will not be the only product. Uh, and actually, we are doing this together with Balancer. Uh, we are using their new kind of vault contract to help some, some, some guest optimizations. Um, to some extent, you can use internal balances or, or save some, some guests on ERC-20 token transfers. If you Specifically, if you do this batch settlement and you uh, settle a, a bunch of trades, but long story short, uh, also the balancer interface will soon um, kind of route their trades or trades coming from that interface should be routed through this uh, balancer analysis protocol, where again, then on the middle layer, um, the solvers sit that kind of collect all those orders and try to figure out what's the optimal way to take all this trading volume and distribute it uh, and execute it at fair prices uh, against all the on-chain uh, liquidity, again, coming from Balancer, coming from SushiSwap, Uniswap, and so on. Interesting. So in this case, what you described is like the benefits to using this. It's reduced MEV and reduced cost. Do you see this project then also kind of coming into competition with the L2s? Like it's not an L2, but like, is it solving the same, a similar problem to what they're solving? Yeah, it's it's to some extent. I mean, of course, there can be DEXs completely separate on L2s, but as soon as they want to tap uh, into the L1 uh, liquidity, it can actually 
be very useful because we yeah, have this concept of, of batch settlements. Uh, so we have a list of, I don't know, 15 trades that might happen on, yeah, kind of on a higher level. And, and then they are just settled in, in one uh, larger transactions uh, against the L1 on-chain liquidity. Cool. Yeah, I guess maybe how, how did you end up kind of deciding on the balancer vault and balancer working with them versus kind of integrating your existing kind of setup? And then also a little bit about kind of like maybe we, a slight deviation, but not a super deviation is talking about Gnosis Auction and the that version of the world, because I think the dual to kind of the cow swap is is these OTC large size transactions or, or allowing DAOs to kind of sell their treasuries more efficiently. And and I think it it's interesting to understand how you thought about building both of those projects at the same time because one is very left brain, one is very right brain, right? In some weird way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So maybe first answering the the uh, partnership with Balancer. Yeah, I, I would say those thing, things are perfectly complementary. Balancer is developing in a direction. They are trying to address the the problems of automated market makers in a different way. So there is this problem of capital inefficiency, and Uniswap is solving it currently or trying to solve it with Uniswap version three by something I would say that brings it closer back to an order book mechanism in a very elegant way. But Balancer is kind of I would say going into the direction of still trying to keep this very retail friendliness so that, that someone as, who has no, not too much idea about uh, market making can still kind of put their capital in there and hopefully get, uh, get a good return. And the ways uh, how they achieve that and how they improve kind of the market maker experience or the, the uh, AMM experience is dynamic fees so that someone else is being able to to set the fees for those who provide the liquidity and this concept of um, yeah managed pools or pool manager and asset manager that the assets that sit in the market maker um, or in the AMM can still be used somewhere else. So I think the bottom line is Uniswap potentially wants to even reduce TVL and say, okay, we can with, with less TVL still have good good amount of, of trading volume. Uh, well, Balancer really tries to say, okay, what, what can we do with as much capital as possible and how can we use it as good as possible? And, and therefore, I would say it makes a lot of sense to say, well, we built this layer on top of Balancer where trading kind of to some extent can already be netted or can already be matched against each other, but then uh, we can match it against this large pool. Although I have to say the protocol is is slightly preferring balancer or there's slight gas optimizations for balancer but it's, it's possible to settle against any any on-chain liquidity so it's not uh, not just bound to balancer if, if we think about the the cow swap it's really focused on small size traders right because if you're trading large enough size mev probably doesn't matter that much to you to be honest i mean it does a little bit why? but it's not <laughs> why i mean why why would it well it's not that it do doesn't matter it's just that like you know, I feel like people are computing this as percentage of trading size. And like, th there yeah. are certainly times, right, yeah. in duress where it will be large when you're large size. But when the chain is kind of like in median gas price, it's not. Yeah, I, I would 
I would to some extent, I mean, from the meme and so on, we definitely targeted with, with CowSwap in the beginning, like small small traders. But I would actually argue as a small trader, the only thing you should right now care about is gas costs. Because, uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, to some extent, I mean, it's insane that sometimes people pay 10% or even more of the traded value in gas costs. Then you really don't have to care about MEV because that there we are talking about maybe at, at max 1%. So if you're wasting 10%, you don't need to care about 1%. But for large trades, um, this is 1%. That that can be a lot. And there, the gas costs then play less of a role. So I, I would definitely say, uh, and, and we have seen over you know, million-dollar-plus trades uh, on CowSwap, and we definitely want to see more of those. So we are uh, still targeting yeah, um, that market. For, for sure, for sure. I wasn't necessarily saying that I, I that like it's impossible. I, I guess you know the notion of what large and small is changes over time too. I was just thinking about Gnosis auction as more you know an interesting mechanism for DAOs that will have to sell very large size potentially. And so I, I I guess at least to me they kind of seem like opposite products servicing the opposite sides of the market. E- even though small might not mean your mom buying whatever the new dog coin is. So maybe actually, yeah, it would be great if you talked about the Gnosis auction. Like describe w- what what the genesis is, what it is, how you guys got there. Right. So Gnosis auction is a fairly straightforward auction protocol where you can anyone can at any time set up an auction and simply define a bunch of tokens they want to sell. And of course, they need to specify uh, for what they want to sell it. And then over a specified period of time, could be days, could be 15 minutes, bidders can submit their bids uh, at, at different prices. And once the auction clears, or basically once the time uh, ends, it's actually possible to do on-chain the calculation of this one single clearing price. So you have all the bids and it will yeah, calculate the exact uh, bid that is required to clear, basically to sell all uh, all the tokens. And it will be then executed at this price. And the one thing where that became most used is, is IDOs. So the idea of your completely new project the token is not yet traded on the market, on any market, and you kind of want to have an initial price finding mechanism or, well, trading mechanism for, for the token. And then, uh, yeah, this auction mechanism is a straightforward uh, way to do it. And, yeah, combats a lot of the problems or the, the MEV problem gets much worse if you're still in price finding mode. So if the price might within minutes uh go up by 10 or 5x from from starting price, well, then the MEV problem on automated market makers is really, uh, really getting severe. So that is Gnosis Auction. And it can definitely also be used for larger trades in general. So we have seen this use case more and more that DAOs uh, sit on, well, million-dollar treasuries and as a DAO, they want to well to sell, let's say, one million worth of or five million worth of Ether, let's say, for for a stablecoin, and it's not so easy for them uh, to do that. So, of course, they could try to trade on, well, let's say, Uniswap, but that would first cause more slippage than than necessary, and also, um, yeah, again, you have this this problem of MEV, and specifically, you have the problem that you need to initiate the trade 
probably was a long, well, there, there needs to be a proposal and then there needs to be voting and eventually the transaction is executed. So at the time you initiate it, you don't know what the price will be. So it's, it's hard uh, to do it. So yeah, here, Gnosis Auction has become an option. And the way we are thinking about it in kind of relationship to Gnosis Protocol is that eventually we would we are going to merge those things. So how that would look like is that you can optionally have this auction and, and have the bidding going on, but the final clearing, or once the time is over, then you still have um, the solver that yeah will do the, the remaining settlement against on-chain liquidity. And it's required to, to serve all the bids first, but if there's... Uh, something remaining or kind of there's better price right now uh, on chain available than kind of some of the bits it can use this, this, this settlement uh, against on-chain liquidity so are those two things being used in tandem or is it more theoretically they could be used so right now they are still separate yeah okay so this is like an idea then yeah well i think a natural a natural transition is basically talking about how like, hey, we've seen some DAOs use Gnosis Auction and how does kind of that interact with kind of a lot of the governance tools um, you guys are working on. I think especially in the vacuum left by Aragon, it's kind of, it seems like there's a two horse race of uh, a, a very different philosophies of, of compound governance forks and Gnosis. And so yeah, it'd be it'd be interesting to think about how you know you you guys have this suite of products that in theory actually could all be tied together. So you know where do you see that going, and also how how do you guys think through governance? Right. So the background of our kind of governance activities was the very simple fact that we developed Gnosis Safe coming back from our own needs. So really, kind of long long time ago, we well we did an ICO, and back in the days there wasn't even a multisig available that could hold tokens. So well we developed one, uh, and it became the kind of standard for 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 teams to manage funds. And kind of out of that effort, uh, the Gnosis Safe developed. The Gnosis Safe is simple smart contract uh, or multisig wallet that allows you to set permissions of kind of who can access the funds under which rules. The simplest rules are simple, yeah, let's say two out of uh, N, N out of M signatures that are required uh, to move the funds, but you can set more and more uh, complex rules, kind of say under this conditions or, or some out of this group and some out of this group and whatever, whatever. you can really uh, try to define rules for, yeah, who's allowed to do when what transaction. And what we have seen is that yeah, more and more teams or slash DAOs are using it, or that that became basically the standard solution for for teams to manage the funds. They put them in a safe. And the step we then have been doing, or, or the second um, product that emerged, was this uh, idea of yeah snapshot voting or off-chain voting. So on-chain voting is simply very complicated and well, frankly, very expensive. So an Ethereum transaction can easily cost. $50, $100, and I mean, who who would want to pay $100 just to submit a vote? And I mean, even if, if let's say you are just one out of 10,000 token holders, I mean, you would certainly not pay $100 to kind of for, for your small vote. So what became really the standard was this concept of uh, off-chain voting that you just sign a message with your wallet that contains a token, and there you, you can verify that, well, you have the token and so on. But that unfortunately is all off-chain and cannot be 
easily verified on-chain. So that's the bridge we were trying to build with, uh, with SafeSnap. So you just mentioned snapshot. Let's define what right. snapshot is and then how that relates to SafeSnap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so snapshot is this governance tool that allows very easy for, for communities to say, okay, we have a token and you can within minutes spin up a, a simple voting system where someone can make, well, any, anyone can make a proposal and the token holders vote. But all of that is done uh, off-chain, but it, yeah, it, it provides tools to read the balances uh, on-chain. And that's also where the name snapshot comes from. So you define a specific block where a snapshot is taken. So on this block, you say, okay, we had... 5,000 token holders and token holder one had this balance and token holder two had this balance and kind of those are your voting rights and kind of all, all of that logic that's what what uh, snapshot provides who put that together is that a product that you built or is that some someone else's no that 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 is that is something that came out of balancer so balancer used that for their own governance but at some point decided okay this is a useful tool uh, in general and then kind of the team's a specific team spun out and um, is in general providing this this tooling. And I think currently, definitely the majority of, of, of DAOs, uh, probably a few hundred, I mean, maybe active, maybe like 50, but it's it's heavily used, yeah, by many DAOs. This is still off-chain voting, though. So this is, this is, you say it's a snapshot that gives you the value of I guess each user's voting rights, but then where, where are they actually voting? Are they just like if it's not on chain, how how can you not like? Couldn't you just sort of fake it? Yes and no. So when you vote, what you're doing is you are actually using your your account to provide a signature, uh, and therefore that is not fakeable. So that that can be verified. There are problems around censorship, so it's not clear that you need to trust kind of their their server that uh, your vote is actually, um, they, they could censor votes, basically, yeah. I see. So there is that a bit of like a weak point of Snapshot? Oh, for, sh- for sure, for sure. And that's definitely something they, they want to address. Uh, there are various solutions to that. The easiest one is to ha- to take your favorite sidechain or L2 or whatever and, and, and publish publish the, the votes there. So let's move on to Safe Snap. This is the project right. that interacts. Is this also something that lives on top of Snapshot? Exactly. So, so current or the previously the status was very often, or kind of it's a very very common setup for DAOs. Effectively, have this snapshot voting where decisions are made, but then still just have a multisig. So I don't know five members from the community effectively control the funds and control some, sometimes even just kind of. Uh, rights in the protocol, so rights to upgrade, rights to set fees, right to make changes. So the idea is, well, the voting is happening, and then you hope that the the multisig holders, or they, they promise that they will do what the voting says. Of course, that's not necessarily what we want, or kind of, of course, ideally, we would want to make the voting directly uh, enforceable. And that is what, what SafeSnap tries to do. So what we are saying is, okay, you have your safe anyhow that that kind of has this right or well, that might have the funds or might have the right to do some change. And we built this tool that really tries to connect those two things tightly. So the first thing that is required is that when you write a proposal, 
you not just write a text saying, well, we should set the fee to uh, something, but in addition, you need to provide actual bytecode or, or, or specific Ethereum transaction. So you say that's a proposal and basically that is what we want to see. And this transaction mm -hmm. could be, well, changing a fee parameter that could be making a payout out of the treasury to, to someone that could, whatever, it can, can be anything. It can be setting an ENS record to another uh, content hash, so that, that's the first step um, to kind of be more specific, to, to be machine readable, kind of make a machine readable proposal. The second step is after the voting uh, has happened, then you somehow need to have a mechanism to decide or to, to let the Ethereum blockchain know <laughs> that this voting kind of was it successful or kind of. And there we are using uh, an Oracle solution. And that's another project we are building on top, which is called Realities. And the very simple concept here is that it is a, a staking game. So someone is making the claim saying kind of, well, that vote happened and it happened in favor of, of the proposal. The proposal was accepted and this vote had this specific uh, payload. And, and you're ma basically making this claim and you're staking a small amount of, let's say, Ether behind it. Let's say half, half an Ether. And if no one challenges that, fine. Uh, then after a timeout period of, let's say, 24 hours, it passes and the proposal can be executed. If someone is challenging it, then, yeah, it has this yeah, escalation game where you need to, to double the amount uh, and you could kind of challenge against it. And then again, if it runs out of time, 24 hours, well, then then it's um, rejected. And actually, the, the one who first did the potentially malicious uh, claim uh, they will lose their ether yeah and and you kind of have the staking game there are a few parameters how you can set up the staking game one is just using ether um, and kind of relying on the idea that the majority of ether holders might be be honest um, if you don't want to do that you can also use the token for for the staking game and then you uh, you kind of basically say well we anyhow assume that the majority of token holders can do whatever they want. <laughs> so then we can also use uh, that security uh, in the staking game. I see now where the link is to DAOs, how it provides a structure to execute sort of those those choices that are made. Whereas I kind of, of want to go back to Snapshot. If it's happening off-chain, is it just sort of like after the vote would happen, a new smart contract would be deployed to do it or that, like something would be triggered in a smart contract? by some central entity like i'm trying to figure out this this uh comparison a little bit more clearly yeah so usually the the idea is that there is already an uh, safe or already a, a contract that holds let's say whatever the DAO represents so that that contract can have some power in other contracts or hold some assets so that is an also safe and that already exists and then the proposal is just a transaction that is being executed from that from that safe but and, but going back to what it was without safe snap that's what i'm trying to compare like oh well it it was exactly the same in that sense the only difference was without safe snap you just had to rely on the on the safe owners on the kind of like the the uh. the 3 out of 4 signers to actually do this proposal uh, with safe snap you don't need to have those um like 3 4 authorities Actually, there's a middle ground that we even currently recommend. The middle ground would be to still have those signers as a, as a backstop. Uh, so it can be uh, executed completely automatically 
through the safe snap mechanism, but they could still have some veto rights, but eventually you can get rid of them. And then you have the safe that doesn't have any owners or the only owners is this complicated uh, governance uh, mechanism with the Oracle that, that kind of sells, says, well, that was voted on. But the safe snap does not help in the creation of the governance proposals in any way, does it? Right. No, exactly. So the whole process of how you create the proposal Or, I mean, well, to some extent, we have a small plugin that allows you to define an Ethereum transaction, so a target and a payload, okay. But but the whole process of how you make the proposal and how you come to agreement about the proposal, that is, in principle, uh, agnostic. So, well, we have built it around um, the snapshot tool, but actually it's already being used um, for other mechanisms. So there are, for example, DAOs on, on XDAI, let's say, uh, Colony and well other, other frameworks. So you could also say, well, the decision is happening there through that framework or whatever rules you want to have, but eventually it's executed uh, the same way through this Oracle mechanism that then would not ask, did the, snaps, uh, the snapshot vote happen, but did this DAO decision happen on XDAI or on Polygon or where, wherever? And Yeah, it's basically just a way to execute a decision that was somewhere objectively made somewhere else. <laughs> When I first read about this, I thought for a moment it was related to what Gauntlet is building, what Tarun is working on with the kind of coming up with these governance proposals. But Tarun, to you, like for your tool, does it have to be on-chain governance to be able to do it? Or are you also helping to like determine proposals for off-chain or for something like Snapshot? Uh, yeah, so actually, I mean, we're we're using we kind of definitely work with protocols that are are using things like Snapshot for uh, adjusting parameters. I think the interesting thing that we're starting to see is really that there's this kind of like fast path and slow path in governance of like really big changes will take a whole vote, like a full like executing the bytecode vote, and then really small changes might not like up to some bounds be allowed to be voted on by like a smaller subset or like a subgroup of people. But yeah, I, I basically think that either way, regardless of whether you do kind of slow governance or fast governance, there's still kind of this sense in which you you'd both need, you need some sense of, of, of what recommendations look like, as well as like a way for people to really kind of have tools for generating proposals. Because I, I, at the end of the day, right, like one of the reasons SafeSnap has a huge advantage over, say, compound governance on, from a UX standpoint, it's just way easier to make a proposal, right? Like, the propose function in compound actually really does require you to understand what bytecode you're sending, like, quite intimately. Um, whereas I, I, I do think in, in kind of the snapshot type of thing, you could you can deal with slightly more quali qualitative votes Yeah, I mean that that is I mean that's an ongoing discussion for for well the safe in in general even if in a in a simple multisig if you want to do more complex or many defi interactions for example that require like three four transactions and if you do that uh, with your with your hardware wallet that's not too bad uh, but if if that always requires kind of a round of well people in different time zones and kind of they need to sign that gets complicated so you want to have a way to bundle uh, or kind of have a have something that's meaningful on a human understandable kind of on a proposal level and not on the bytecode level and, and and try to define that fairly easy and one thing we are working on um, for the safe is that you will be just be able to 
simulate transactions or kind of use normal dApps in a in a simulated environment and kind of say I want to do this and then I want to do that and basically then all those transactions are recorded and out of those uh, proposal or the bytecode to execute all those steps is is created. Yeah. You kind of mentioned a few projects that are using Snapshot and then some are not using it and they're doing more like this on-chain. Although I guess it's on-chain on their own dApp chain. I'm trying to picture what like the alternative is to some of those examples. And maybe you can give actual project examples because I'm not as familiar with, with the landscape of DeFi DAOs as both of you are. No, I mean, for example, there's the Compound uh, governance framework. So there are, and also Maker, so there are some governance frameworks where voting and the execution is happening on chain. First of all, it's great because that that really is the ultimate level of of, of guarantees or, or decentralization. But of course, it comes at very very high costs. So the participation, yeah, just the voting again can easily cost fifty to hundred dollars, and that's why more and more projects are using at least hybrid approaches or, or mm. yeah this um, complete off chain voting. Got it. So where is SafeSnap at? Is this already rolled out? Yeah, where at what stage is it? Right. So it is rolled out and we have um, a few DAOs using it. It's still clearly in the space where somewhat still complicated to use, uh, as, as Tarun hinted, at kind of creating this, this bytecode for, for the proposal. Right now, the tooling is not as good that it would be easy for everyone to uh, create a proposal. Um, so that is definitely the most pressing thing uh, that, that needs to be uh, improved. I guess I think the the interesting thing that we've learned is, you know, 2017 had this whole meme, well, maybe not totally just a meme, but it, it happened of like, hey, do tons of on-chain governance, maybe do Futarchy, maybe, do, you know, like there's kind of this like pie in the, and Futarchy would basically be a prediction market on governance votes. And we kind of had this like very like am amorphous kind of like, hey, here's some idea, but here's no technical spec for it or implementation details. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's an exercise to the reader. And, you know, three or four years later, we're like, we actually have, instead of having kind of, uh, you know, hey, there's a one-size-fits-all Slayer governance model, we actually have this, like, hierarchical model of, like, different fits for different types of needs. And I think that's inevitably what, you know, inevitably we're going to have this, like, hydra of different options for different people. But um, I think it's kind of cool that we've evolved from trying to like have this like theory of everything for governance to like hey well maybe just use the right tool for the current your current scenario and and i think DeFi kind of forced that into the this space uh, i think like layer ones are inherently conservative and like won't do big changes and i think to some extent that's why things like governance in like tezos right has had extremely few changes it's a extremely hard to correctly do B, it's hard to convince anyone to even vote because there's just a high fraction of non-active asset holders. And C, it's like there there are day-to-day -day changes you do want to make frequently. And I think only in DeFi is there clear monetary incentive to changing things where people are willing to go and like build kind of this infrastructure. And and I, at least that's, I, I think it's interesting to see like compound governance and, and sort of the safe snap version of the world as like, two kind of non-competing things because they they both serve a very clear purpose for different use cases. And I think that's the thing I'm always left struck by on, in 
non-Ethereum layer ones is that like somehow there's just too many things left to governance and it just is really hard to do. Like, I don't know. I mean, Anna, you, you, you've you dealt with a lot of these like hard forks <laughs> in other layer ones. Like well, think about I've, how hard it is. To- I, have I dealt with the hard forks? Or well, I yeah, mean, actually, also yeah. trusted the ceremonies. Upgrades. Sorry, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, I recently with the zero knowledge validator, we had uh, we went for um, a hub proposal on the Cosmos hub, and it was fascinating. It's that's on chain governance. It's voting by the people and validators. It was amazing because this is a proposal for events. We're doing four events with the zkv on the Cosmos ecosystem, and um, to try to explain what an event costs to every single voter there was very challenging. Um, and maybe that says something about like marketing costs not going through a hub or like a, a funding like that. But yes, I, my, I think my experience so far with on-chain governance is the systems aren't quite in place to make that efficient and to make most efficient use of those funds because not everyone who's voting has domain expertise. And I think that that's maybe where DeFi wins because it's, it's a very narrow level of expertise needed in order to, to do that type of governance, right? Like you're not talking about funding the marketing. You're not talking about like the, the larger funding vision. You're talking about one very narrow thing where there can be a lot of people with that expertise. But, but, but even in, in DeFi, so we, probably the most complex, uh, safe, whatever setup uh, is from the uh, Yearn uh, team already there. They uh, are working on a setup with seven different um, yeah, kind of safes, basically, that would have different authorities about uh, different things. So already there, you well then have this separation of if it's a proposal concerning funding external f- efforts, it would, would go through different um, uh, pipelines, yeah. I think the main thing to to understand is that, to your point, very scoped, easy to understand, and well, like scoped in terms of both the actual thing that's being voted on and the framework to understand why anyone should care is very important to governance. And I think that's where the like layer one, like, hey, we're going to like upgrade the whole network and force everyone to change all their node code. And yeah, we want to do it next week. Attitude is like very hard to reconcile. Versus like, hey, we want to change the interest rate. Here's why like the current thing is wrong is much more palatable. And I think it's it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, in 2017, we had like all these people being like Ethereum governance sucks, which on the all core dev side, you could argue it does, but maybe. But it's kind of interesting to see like the flip, the flippening of, uh, you know, the actual governance innovation seems to be in ETH land. Um, versus off, off ETH, which is like, you know, if you were in 2017, you would have been like saying the opposite thing if you watched ICOs, right? Like it was like everyone was like, we're going to build better governance into our thing. And I, I don't think there's a good example outside of DeFi of like governance actually being kind of effective in a decentralized manner, which is funny, right? Like you didn't like you just it's just hard to have predicted that four years ago. You know, when Gnosis ICO'd, it was a different universe, right? Like everyone was just like huge vision, but like no technical details. And, you know, four years later, we're like, oh, okay, these are the things that work and these are things that don't. And it's, it's cool to see that, you know, it's not necessarily one size fits all, but we found a nice equilibrium. The Pleaser DAO that we talked about two episodes ago, is that using any of these things, by the way? We're actually using compound governance for the token 
I'm officially, as a U.S. citizen, not on the multi-sig. I just happen to a- accidentally okay. own any uh, some of the initial minted tokens. Okay. But we do use Gnosis for the multi-sig. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All of our bids are done via Gnosis Safe. It's just, just for minting we had a, a compound governance contract. But it's definitely, I think, the, Id- the idea of building these tools where I think it's going to be way more useful, in spite of the fact that I'm... I'm the first person to tell you I think DeFi is awesome and I love it. But I actually think it's going to be way more useful for these like art DAO type things or like collective ownership of some data in some weird way than it is for DeFi. But the problem is those people don't want to do any programming. So like we have to get to the point that you can like they can do that on their own without needing to like understand very low level details about the assets they hold and stuff. And so like I think that that that's like the end game is like Okay, if PleaserDAO didn't have a bunch of developers in it, I don't think it would it would have been much harder, right? But it's pretty easy because of that. And so I think who is the ideal consumer seems to be like people who want to have these collective ownership groups but are not technical and like that's the next you know, mm. the next million users or whatever. But wasn't that, I mean, that was what those original DAO projects were meant to do, right? They were supposed to create the UX of DAOs so that anyone could do it. Would you say that like we're back to square one, we have to rebuild on top of the new learnings or can we use some of that stuff? You, when you say old DAOs, you mean like Aragon? Aragon. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I honestly just think like the lightweightness of Gnosis is actually the the key to... <laughs> It, it, it's just like less effort. Aragon just like you have to learn their whole vernacular and like be ingratiated into their the the cult in some ways to use it. Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, it's, uh, fundamentally, it's just very hard problems. So it will just yeah take 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 more time. So the the safe is is the kind of minimum form of governance. I mean, the the simplest form is well, you have a multisig, you have I don't know five five key holders, and if three of them agree, well, then you can do something. In a way that that that's at least starting point. And then the whole topic around how you describe a transaction, how you uh, make sure that the transaction does what it what it says to do. Well, that that is simply a hard problem we are trying uh, to tackle. Um, and then, kind of on top of that, yeah, you have the additional hard problem that we won't tackle, and that that others hopefully will tackle if say you have a thousand people and somehow they together need to come to an agreement and what is this process um but yeah i I think the the really cool thing about ethereum is the the composability so yeah as tarun mentioned like already today uh gnosis safe can be combined with well snapshot with uh compound actually also with aragon so uh aragon daos could exist on uh, layer two and kind of the decision that's being made there is then executed from a safe on on layer one so yeah there's almost in infinite uh, ways to combine uh, combine things so i want to bring it back to the que- the sort of point we made right at the beginning this idea of gnosis gnosis's focus on focus so we're we've heard now kind of the gnosis safe which is I guess it's the most, is it the most used kind of like the largest success from your stack of products? Yeah, probably. It currently holds uh, almost 30 billion worth of assets. Wild. It's done well. (laughs) So from there, you've built, like you're building sort of the the DAO front. I don't know if like, does the cow swap still relate to that part of the stack as well? 
Yeah, yes and no. So um, so I would say the, the two big focuses for Gnosis are currently the wallet, Gnosis Safe, uh, and Gnosis Protocol um, exchange uh, mechanisms. There are, of course, uh, connections. So ideally, if you have your funds in the Gnosis DAO, or specifically teams or also individuals, well, you want to trade and uh, we definitely want to, or we, we already have the tool to kind of a safe app. We have this concept of apps within the safe. You can start a Gnosis auction. So there is some overlap, but I would still say those two projects are somewhat separate. Yeah. Cool. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us this update about Gnosis and about these kind of exciting new developments that have happened in the last two years. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Cool. Thanks again, Tarun. Thanks. And I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, to the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>